When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. Here's Shahan J. Haraja and Babak Hayeri. Hey, everybody. We're only a week into the offseason, and it's been impressively packed. Coaches are moving, players are transferring, people are plotting. We already had a show about Saban's retirement, but before we get too far removed, we wanted to take some time to unpack Michigan's championship and explore some of its ramifications for both Michigan and the rest of college football heading into next season. This is the College Football Survivor Show, where we are all about the race for the college football playoff championship. I'm Bob Akairi, and I'm joined by Shahan Raja, national college football writer for CBS Sports. You can find us on X and TikTok at CFB Survivor Show, where we have video highlights of the show, run polls, and listen to your feedback. As a podcast, we always appreciate it when you take a moment to like, rate, and subscribe to us wherever you get your shows. Good reviews help us expand our audience. Hey, if they're interesting, might even talk about them on the show. It's been only a week since the season's ultimate college football survivor was crowned, but my goodness, it feels like it's been a long time. The Michigan Wolverines, who, as of this Monday recording session, are technically still coached by Jim Harbaugh, completed a 15-0 season that was almost as notable for what happened off the field as on it. We wanted to take a second to kind of talk about what that means. Sean, what are, what are your initial thoughts on this? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, you look at this Michigan team, and I think that in a lot of ways, the off-field stuff, kind of made them more resilient on the field. It was it was almost a last dance situation, I feel like, where everybody knew that there are so many players who could go to the league after this. There are so many players who could decide not to come back. There's so many coaches who might not come back in 2024 that I think that it made it a really unique year, a really unique kind of situation. And Players bought into that and coaches bought into that. They coached and played every game in a way like it was their last, I think. And when you saw the urgency that they played with in the Alabama game and the Washington game, I I think it really stands apart that they knew that this was a life changing opportunity for them. Yeah, it's rare you see a team where everyone heading into the season thought this is it. This is the make or break season. Their entire the last four years um, the rebuild from that that uh, crater of 2020 is coming to this. You've got a lot of seniors. You've got a lot of experienced talent. Everyone felt like win or lose Harbaugh's status as wanting to stay there was kind of in question. Um, and even early on in the season, people thought, it seems like he might be getting tired. He might want to move on. So all of that stage being set, and we've seen it set before with other teams, but I don't think we've ever seen a team not only take on extra drama um, throughout the entire season, but manage to persevere and and have for the team a storybook ending where you go 15 and 0, have you know the, the 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 parade, the championship, the victory lap, all of those things. I mean, for Michigan fans, that was you rarely get a season that has all of those factors coming together, and then the team manages to meet expectations because I think 
if they had lost, I don't know, Ohio State, if they had lost somehow to Iowa, if they had fallen in that overtime game to Alabama, people would have been like, okay, yeah, that's about right. That was just too much. You know, they were trying to do too much at once. And, you know, they, good job, great effort. You know, especially if they if they'd fallen again in the um, playoff, that would have been interesting, actually, because then there would have been the whole complication of he just couldn't win. He just could get to the uh, the semifinal and not make it. But yeah, I, I, that is just what makes his team kind of striking is that all the things coming together, they manage to stay focused. They manage. I mean, I still get a kick out of looking at like the I think it was like the 2023 <laughs> season on uh, Wikipedia and you see the coat, the section on coaching. And now there's a gallery of all five people who had coached that team at one point or another. Usually you get a season like, I don't know, it was like 2013 USC where they had three head coaches at one point or another because it was utter chaos. This is a rare instance where you have like <laughs> that kind of a situation and they made it through. But one thing uh, that we learned is that I guess Harbaugh can can make it happen. I mean, he proved himself after years of doubts. Um, again, hitting rock bottom in 2020, uh, he's demonstrated that he could do it. And, you know, say what you will. He's a he's an interesting guy. He's got some quirks. But the man truly, truly is a dyed in the wool fanatical believer in the concept of being a Michigan man. And he did it. He he had his his own. Ver- I, I don't want to say he had a storybook ending because the guy clearly wants to do more. And as we we're talking about it, he's now officially interviewing for NFL jobs. But as far as this chapter, which may or may not be the the best chapter in his particular book, he did it. And maybe they'll keep the championship in the long run. Who knows? But I don't think anyone in Ann Arbor cares about what the NCAA eventually says about it. They they got what they need and and they put a nice tight bow on it. Well, and I think the other part of this too is that there definitely will be punishment. There definitely will be complications. I don't expect that a championship is going to be vacated. Also, by the way, who cares about vacated championships? I'm sorry. Louisville basketball won a national championship. It happened. Reggie Bush won a Heisman Trophy. It happened. We were there. We saw it all. And so I do think that uh, you saw so much from Michigan that they wanted to push these questions to the offseason, right? They wanted to wait. They wanted us uh, to to be able to see this team come to fruition and whatever happens after the season happens. Again, that's why I kind of go back to that last dance analogy. Uh, the head coach in charge of all of this might not be here heading forward, and I think everybody understands that's a possibility. So uh, ultimately, I think it's something that uh, that Michigan fans, like nobody should look back on this team no matter what happens and think oh there was an asterisk there oh there was you know whatever whatever like nobody should look at it like that i don't think anybody will look at it like that i I mean the honestly the the whole like all the stuff around this team in hindsight just feels like such a sideshow right like connor stallions yesterday posted on instagram with his championship hat in front of the horseshoe stadium in columbus ohio like that is just so wild and and that that's really how i think we're gonna remember this team is just like a chaotic force and but but at the same time we're gonna remember them as champions yeah all we needed was like a uh uh, coach's monkey, girlfriend's monkey into biting oh, somebody boy. or something just to kick it up to <laughs> oh, another level of, of madness. Yeah, but my question is this. So I'm going to I'm going to assume 
for the sake of assumption that Harbaugh, he's gone. Because um, he absolutely, I think he, he's checked out, even in that press conference. The only answer he had to questions about his status was, can I just enjoy this moment? <laughs> which, which pretty much, I think I respected that, but it said all you needed to know about it. But how much, because I'm, I'm now drawing a comparison, um, the future of Michigan to the future of Alabama, because we've already had a discussion about that, but Nick Saban, Retiring was another that was a bit bigger surprise, not a total shock, but a bigger surprise. But that suddenly frees up one of the the Cadillacs, the Rolls Royces of college football. And then Michigan is expected to also free up. So now I'm thinking to myself, Kalen DeBoer has been obviously now hired at Alabama. So he's inheriting a system in place. The next person to whoever succeeds Harbaugh, whether it's uh, Sherrod Moore, whether it's somebody else, um, how much of what they're inheriting is going to allow them to continue the level of success? Because again, say what you, I mean, some people were, I thought in some ways, perhaps overly critical of Michigan over the last previous two seasons. I mean, they made it to the semifinal. Okay. They lost the first one pretty soundly to Georgia. And then they just kind of fell apart against TCU. But I mean, three playoff appearances, they have a good system there, but how much of it is Harbaugh? How much of it, is what Michigan has inherently that he's built up there. Somebody asked a a great question on Twitter the other day, and it was out of the four playoff teams, which one is poised to take the biggest step back next year? And I I think the answer is clearly Washington. So I'm actually going to put that specific question aside. But I do think that it's worth having the conversation, asking the interesting question which of like rank these teams in order of who has sort of the brightest 2024 versus the least bright. So I think that Texas is an obvious number one, just with what they bring back. They're the only one that's guaranteed to bring back their coach, by the way, because Steve Sarkeesian has agreed to a four year contract extension through 2030. You look at what they're doing in the portal right now. They are trying to raid Alabama. Isaiah Bond already committed other players reportedly in contact with Steve Sarkeesian at Texas. Um, And then they also bring back a quarterback, of course, in Quinn Ewers. The number two spot is interesting because it comes down to Alabama versus Michigan. Some of this is unanswerable because Jim Harbaugh is still the coach at Michigan and we don't even know who's going to be on Alabama's spring roster at this point. But let's just take this moment right now. Jim Harbaugh is still the coach at Michigan, but no J.J. McCarthy, no Blake Corum, no Roman Wilson. Uh, I believe Trevor Keegan declared, Chris Jenkins declared. Like, it's a lot of players. There's a lot of players who are going to be gone. I think that all five players who started on the offensive line in the national championship game are likely gone. They, they were all upperclassmen. Mm-hmm. I think some might have an extra year of eligibility, but, but it, it's a possibility that they're all gone. That is tough. That is a really difficult situation, even with Harbaugh coming back potentially to to work through. And then you do have to factor in, right, at quarterback. Are you looking at Jack Tuttle? Are you looking at Alex Orgy there? Do they look to the portal to try to bring somebody in? I think that's in itself a pretty difficult situation. Uh, You know, obviously they have one of the elite coaching staffs, if not the elite coaching staff in all of college football with Sean Moore, with Jesse Minter at defensive coordinator, with some of the position coach that they have, Steve Klinkscale in the, in the defensive backfield, Mike Hart at running backs coach, that they do a great job. But they're also not a team that's 
built around kind of quickly moving through the portal either. They're not going to just all of a sudden, and the portal window is also generally closed. Most of the people who are top transfers have already found new homes. So it's a tough position to be in if you're Michigan. Um, I, I think that next year, 2024, was always going to be a rebuilding year once J.J. McCarthy and some of these juniors declared that they were leaving. Uh, and again, like he won a national championship. There's nothing left to prove here if you're J.J. McCarthy. I do think, I, I mean, this is a conversation we can have further in the offseason. I do think he probably will leave as, you know, the the greatest Michigan quarterback, at least of the modern era, with what he was able to do at Michigan, regardless of what you kind of feel like his role is, is in it. But I do think that they have a lot of work to do, and I think you even have to make the comparison to some extent. Look at what Oregon is bringing back and look at what they've added with Dylan Gabriel. Evan Stewart at wide receiver just transferred into Oregon, which is freaking insane. Dante Moore as well. I think you look at Ohio State and and look, Michigan, Michigan, I will pick against Ohio State until Ohio State proves that they can compete, which is exactly the same way that I felt about it uh, the other way around until 2021. Like, I'm going to pick Michigan next year unless they're six and six. Like, I, I'm going to do it because I'm wow. sorry, Ohio State, you got to you got to grow the hell up, man. You got to grow the hell up. But I, I think oh, that you're free to believe that I think Ohio State's got a really strong case next season because of who they're bringing back. But um, I and- think they had an even better case in 2022 and then they lost. <laughs> this is- well, they got rid of the boogeyman, Kyle McCord. No, <laughs> but goodness. No, yeah, but, but I think I, I think that ultimately, though, right, like Ohio State. You look at them right now. They bring in Quinshawn Judkins, one of the best running backs Mm -hmm. uh, in the country from Ole Miss. Uh, They're returning a shocking amount of production on offense. They they got JT Tuomolau to come back, uh, Jack Sawyer to come back. Like this is this is the Ryan Day year. If he doesn't win the title next year, then he probably just won't win a title. Like this is the year. And so you're competing with Oregon. You're competing with Ohio State. You know Penn State obviously has wasn't as good as we maybe thought that they could be, but like. This is a tough path, is the point. And so I do think that we're going to learn a lot about Michigan in 2024 in terms of like, you know, this was a development cycle sort of program in 2023. I'm going to be very curious to see what happens in 2024. Another part that we do have to mention, if Jim Harbaugh leaves, would you just promote Sharon Moore, try to keep things going? Or do you feel like you have to do a real national search? I could see, well... I think I could see them very much wanting to just promote Sharon Moore and try to keep as much of this winning system together as they can, because this is this isn't necessarily. Uh, I mean, this is the peak of it. You, you've literally had a team that that won fifteen and zero. It's an even better case than what was going on with Washington losing Kalen DeBoer. It's like, well, he just won a championship, and boop, he's gone. What do we do? Do we do we go from inside? It sounds like they're getting Jed Fish, but um. You know, I I would try to do that, although I don't know how much of how quickly I would act on it. I might give it. I mean, let's give Alabama moved remarkably quickly, but it sounds like they also reached out to a lot of people very quickly. So I would I would perhaps try to do that. Maybe you have some home run hires that might transcend that. But I don't. The more I'm saying this aloud, the more I don't know Michigan does not need to quote unquote win the press conference. They can just go to find someone who gets a system, can make it work. And I think Moore has been sticky. I mean, especially with how he wrapped the season up. That was where he kind of took over. Because I mean, the man coached four games 
for the Wolverines um, altogether. And seeing how he did, I think he earned his spot um, as a head coach if they want that level of consistency. I mean, we've we've watched. I mean, but sometimes. Sometimes schools go in a different direction. That's what we saw with Alabama. They were willing to look completely outside. I mean, completely outside of the coaching tree. That was when we talked about that. I was like, well, my only hesitation there, the man has like no connection to the South. Um, And they were willing to go that way. So maybe that's something Michigan would consider. Um, Part of it depends on how the athletic department's shifting. But I could just see historically, for those who remember the, uh, the, the coaching hires before um, before they brought Harbaugh, they 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 feel like they got bit by Rich Rod. They really did. I remember they're like, he's not a Michigan man. We need a Michigan man here. I could see them sticking as close to that as they possibly can. And it's going to be tough to follow Harbaugh. It's not going to be as tough as following Nick Saban, but it's going to be a tough play. To follow Harbaugh, knowing, as you said, they're losing so many players, both from graduation, from declaring for the draft, even Harbaugh staying for a year was going to be a bit of a rebuild. It was going to be maybe realistically, I think, a two to three year to even get into the zone they were at right now. I think whoever gets it, they're going to need to give them patience. But at the same time, who really wants to jump in there right afterwards, knowing how Michigan can be, how quirky they can be towards people who are outsiders? I'm, honestly, I haven't sat down and looked at what Michigan men are available uh, out there who might be able to take that spot. But that's certainly something to keep in mind. Well, I think for me, because we have this comparison right now, right, between Alabama and Michigan, and Alabama decided to go outside of the family and hire a true outsider when there were so many candidates that had ties to Alabama and to Nick Saban. I do think this is a little different for a couple of reasons. One, the Michigan system right now is at the peak of its powers. The Alabama system right now is kind of quietly moving backwards, right? They didn't win a national championship for the first time in three years, for the first time since 2009 at Alabama. And so, you know, is this a different conversation if Nick Saban retires in 2015 than it is him retiring in 2023? Then maybe do you just promote or or find somebody? I, I think that maybe that's more of a conversation. I think the other part of this is that we have seen that the Harbaugh system can exist without Jim Harbaugh. Like you said, six games this year, Michigan played without Jim Harbaugh. Now, he has a lot to do with what's, what goes into prep and what goes into player development and recruiting. But I do think that, uh, you know, you look at sort of this back and forth that Jim Harbaugh has with John Harbaugh in the NFL. There is a system there, right? There is an understanding. And so I do think that if you get people who have deep ties to this Harbaugh system and understanding, like Sean Moore, like Jesse Minter, you know, I mean, Mike McDonald right now, uh, you know, former Michigan defensive coordinator, now defense coordinator with the Ravens. He's somebody who's getting NFL head coaching uh, interviews right now. But, you know, I, I think that you could try to find somebody who you have a lot of faith and trust in who potentially could carry this system on, keep the infrastructure in place, keep the administration in place. Because the reality is, too, Jim Harbaugh is going to take some of his staff to the NFL if he does take that job. But this isn't a situation where like the director of player personnel and director of recruiting are going to follow him to the NFL. Those are people that, for the right price, you might be able to keep on campus. And so I think that's going to be part of the discussion and part of the conversation is, you know, look, 
how much of this is replicable for with people who understand the Harbaugh system. And I think that Sharon Moore or Jesse Minter are people who are willing to do that. So I think that they should probably be more open-minded to promoting than, uh, than I would have been for Alabama. The other part that I'll say about this as well is that when you look at uh, when you look at Michigan right now, I mean, again, you have a solid coaching staff who I think have bright futures in college football. And so I think that if you can keep more of these people around, I mean, that is something that I think is pretty attractive if you're the University of Michigan right now. <laughs> I admit when we were talking about this, I was thinking, or they could go full chaos and hire Dion. That would be the, uh, like, <laughs> it, it never, nothing oh. fails to make me laugh than seeing any open position and oh. imagine Dion Sanders suddenly sauntering well, into Ann Arbor. But <laughs> I will say one other thing is that you got to see the Alabama search and it involved a lot of people deciding to stay with their schools. Now, it, we can have a conversation about who was actually talked about for the job, who was actually offered, who had the opportunity. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I mean, they hired Kalen DeBoer, who's a really good coach, but also is not. I mean, he's he's not hiring Lincoln mm-hmm. Riley right at USC. He's not hiring Brian Kelly at LSU. They hired a very good coach. And if you're Michigan right now, you have to step back into that market that Alabama just went through. And all the guys who got raises off of Nick Saban retiring are probably no longer available because of that. And so the timing of the situation ends up being just a little bit weird. I think that Kalen DeBoer would have been a top target for Michigan had he not landed at Alabama. Now you don't have that option potentially. And so I think that that's even more reason to potentially try to stick with what's worked and and not overreact and try to just take a swing when maybe you have some good options in the building. Yeah, one thing I will say, regardless of how Kalen DeBoer ends up at Alabama, I was very impressed by the the process. They managed to take the highest profile job hiring in college football and tied a boat. I mean, he was saying we'll have an idea in 72 hours. It was like 56 or so. And he, he had his, they had their person. And that was absolutely impressive. Um, you know, and you can't help but think of the timing in all of this. I know some people said had Jonathan Smith not gone to Michigan State, he would have absolutely been Washington's first choice. But yeah, he was gone. And uh, sometimes, you know, it's not like Washington was planning around, you know, Nick Saban's retirement. Arizona certainly wasn't. Now they're looking for a new head coach. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, one thing I just wanted to kind of ask, especially as we kind of tie a bow on this season for Michigan. Um, and I'd seen this question asked on on Reddit, but I, uh, the answers were kind of, eh. I was more curious to your perspective on this because we're going to lose. We've lost Nick Saban. We're probably going to lose Jim Harbaugh. So if you're ranking the top three head coaches active right now, um, based on you know a little bit of past reputation, current reputation, and potential future um, uh, benefit. Where would you rank them at? Because Saban was by far number one. You could argue Harbaugh had worked his way into the very least a top three. And, you know, the thing that was pointed out is some have said Dabo Swinney started to dip a little bit and his star has has descended a little bit. I mean, clearly they were able to rally after Tyler from Spartanburg, but it's still not quite the, <laughs> the championship runs they were going on. Um, how would you, who do you, th- I mean, Kirby Smart's probably number one. I think it, we can there's say no that. Probably. He, he is number one. There is no question yeah. about it. But after that, I think it gets tricky. No, I agree. Uh, I think Dabo still has to be in the top three. Uh, I mean, he's won two titles. He did it at a place where 
you just, you don't win titles, you know, you don't win titles. You don't win multiple titles at Clemson. You just don't. And so I think that he still belongs in the top three. The question is, has anybody overtaken him? The conversations I would say are a Brian Kelly, who's led multiple playoff teams. Mm-hmm. I think Lincoln Riley's stock has taken a pretty big hit after it this has. past year. I I'm not out on Lincoln Riley. I think that, honestly, I, I think they might be a little surprising in 2024. Brian Day's stock has taken a pretty significant hit as well. You know, is it too early to start having Mike Norvell conversations? Is it too early to start having, uh, you know, Steve Sarkeesian conversations? I think it probably is. Is it too early to, be, to start having Kalen DeBoer conversations? I think it probably is. Dan Lanning might fit into that category yeah. too. It's like a future, but that's like a right. up, you're looking future. You're looking right. current's pretty good. Future seems very bright, right. but it's tough to put a person into that into that group. Well, and I, I think basis. the other part of this too is like you can't put Dan Lanning into this group when Kalen DeBoer just pantsed him twice, right? Like or, or three <laughs> times, right? So like I, I think that if you have that Dan Lanning conversation, I think Kalen DeBoer belongs in front of him, right? The second, uh, this is tough. I, I think I would have Dabo Swinney number two because his accomplishments are just so much higher than everybody else. Um, but like you said, a much less commanding number two than it was five years ago. Because yeah, I want to caution, if we're talking people who won championships, Mac Brown is still out there. Um. All right, this is not the same. This is not the same. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and then I think you start having conversations about like, I mean, how much do you love Chris Kleiman, right? Like, how much do you love Kyle Whittingham? How, and that, uh, this is tough. This is really, really hard. I think my number three, and I don't feel good about this at all. I think I'm going to go with Brian Kelly. But like you said, I, I don't feel amazing about it. I wish that we had this conversation last year and not right now. Yeah. <laughs> but I do think that his track record is pretty unbelievable. Uh, you look at what he accomplished at Notre Dame. We can have the conversations about not reaching the top level, but to be extremely good for an extremely long time is is crazy. Even in this down year, they went ten and three at LSU and the, the SEC Heisman, West. Yeah. yeah, with the Heisman Trophy, that you know, we have a conversation <laughs> about the Heisman Trophy. But you know, it it is very impressive, and he did it at Notre Dame. He moved to LSU, a team that what had gone. 500 the year before and took them to an sec west title Mm -hmm. they they have a lot to figure out they have a lot to prove in 2024 of course but there's a difference between going nine and three in a not great season and you know like a lincoln riley and 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 just to have i mean ryan day is such an interesting conversation because i think it also for me it's always going to come back to how highly i think of the ohio state job Right. Like I think that Ohio State personally is the number one job in college football. And I think it recruits itself at this point, especially after Urban Meyer's recruiting operation. I think that the development stuff is there. I think that the organization is there. And he also is such an interesting coach because you've had coaches like Urban Meyer and Jim Tressel who have lost games along the way, but they usually win the big ones. Ryan Day never wins the big ones, but he handles his business along the way. So it it sort of ends up a question of like, well, are they just so talented that nobody else can really compete with them outside of one or two teams? I I don't know. I, I, I don't know where to weigh him, but my ultimate feeling on Ryan Day is that you have 
one job at Ohio State University, and he's failed to do it for three straight years. I mean, you can even say two two jobs, right? It's beat Michigan and win the Big Ten, and <laughs> he hasn't done it. So I I don't know. I I think Ryan Day's next season is going to have a decent shot, though, because that schedule it suddenly looks like Michigan's yes. schedule. Yes. That was this season. The only, of course, the trick is they play at Oregon, which is that, that new surprise uh, getting thrown in there. So Dan Lanning versus Ryan Day. Man, Dan Lanning, Ryan Day, that is going to be the, the amount of writing that's going to be about that one, especially because, I mean, for those, if you're listening and you're wondering what we're talking about. So uh, Ohio State, their, their schedule heading into is Akron, Western Michigan, Marshall, Michigan State, we'll see. Uh, Iowa, we'll see if they have an offense by that time before they head to Autzen, which is a wild place to play. I've been there as a fan, and it is as loud as they describe. Um, that'll be an interesting one. That'll be a great question of Dan Lanning's um, uh, Dan Lanning's line or or or, or um, oh my trend gosh. line. Uh, yeah. Yeah, his his career line and Ryan Day's career line. Where which way are they going? Yeah. Um, it'll be fun to see that. That's going to be the. But I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. Um, well, no, no, you have to answer the question too. Who would you have in your top three? Oh my goodness! Well, again, Kirby Smart number one. Davo, I think, has put himself in the number three spot. Okay. Now, this is where I think we're gonna we're gonna differ a little bit here. I okay. think Ryan Day really is a better coach than people give him credit. I think. Losing these games to Michigan, yeah, I get it. They're not that's that's what you ultimately get judged by. But this was an incredible three-year run by Michigan to not only beat Ohio State, but go to the playoff and ultimately win the whole thing. I do think Michigan's gonna take a significant step down. I'm not saying like they're gonna have a losing season, but I just don't think what we're gonna see next season, Harbaugh or not, is gonna be close to what they just had in this three-year run. And don't get me wrong, Michigan fans will be probably very patient with him if he stuck around and rebuilt another team. I just don't think he wants to. I think Ryan Day's now going to have a team, particularly the transfer portal. You you mentioned it. They've got, you know, a great new running back. They've kept one of their the running backs everyone thought was going to leave uh, to go to the, the draft. So they're going to have an incredible backfield. They're going to have potentially a better quarterback. Um, I am somewhat optimistic that this is going to be a year where they will almost certainly have a strong shot. They will be, I think they're going to be in the Big Ten title game. I think they're probably going to win the Big Ten title game. And in a 12-team playoff, they're going to be a playoff team. Win or lose, frankly. So, but but this whole conversation about Ryan Day is saying, well, maybe he can win a big game. Like, in the future, hypothetically, right? So, like, over the last three yeah. years, what's the most impressive thing that he's accomplished? Now, I, I want to be clear. In 2019... He had a good year. He had a good season in 2020. Of course, I think it was their best chance to win a national championship. I don't. I, I mean, it's unfortunate. I think that his best year was during the pandemic. It just, it just makes it really hard to like gauge what that means. But like 2021, 2022, 2023. Like I, I don't know what he's hanging his hat on. Mm. I may be deceived here. I do want to say though, Brian Kelly was a great call. I didn't consider him as strongly. And um, but I think you're right. He would probably be he'd be battling uh, Dabo for number three in my spot. I uh, but I think next year I'm going to either I'm probably uh, we'll see if I eat my words on Ryan Day. But <laughs> yeah, um, and, and if Ryan Day wins the title, next, like I've, I've had a little bit of this conversation about Jim Harbaugh. I had him more in the Brian Kelly tier than in the Nick mm. Saban Kirby smart tier. 
well, now he's proven he belongs in the uh, in that tier, right? Like he belongs in the top tier. If if he was coming back to college football next year, I'd have him number two behind Kirby Smarts, right? And so, uh, which he might, for the record, but I I just think that the. <sighs> Ohio State, man, is just one of those jobs. It's like I, I consider, for example, Oklahoma one of those jobs. They won 10 games this year. That, that did nothing for me. You're supposed to win 10 games at Oklahoma. And so I just – and he did it in a Big Ten that was so top-heavy, like so ridiculously top-heavy. And that's unfair that he's held to the standard of Michigan. But, like, it, he, it just – he didn't accomplish – Anything that I feel like the most impressive thing that Ryan Day has done over the last three years is almost beat Georgia. Like that, that is the greatest accomplishment of his last three years is almost beating Georgia. And to be the number two coach in all of college football, I, I just need more than that, man. I just need more than that. I respect it. And I'd love to hear Lou Holtz's take on my view as well. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! Um, <laughs> but it, it's it's just going to be fascinating to see how this pans out for for Michigan um, heading forward. When we come back, we're going to take a quick look at some of the the greater questions for college football based on how Michigan did in the college football playoff here on the College Football Survivor Show. The College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. So with Michigan winning in their own way, winning the way that Harbaugh built that team, which some thought was designed to beat Ohio State, but not necessarily win a playoff game, let alone win a national championship. You, you can just say me. You don't have to say some people. You can just say me. Oh, no, 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 no. I, I, <laughs> I, you're not alone on that view. You're absolutely not alone on that view. I want to be clear. But it kind of begs some larger questions for college football in general, mostly around how they built that team. And is there a shift in how these sorts of teams are made? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think we have to not just look at Michigan. I think we need to look at the last three years of data. And the reason that I say that is look at 2021 Georgia. I, I think 2022 Georgia, they were an awesome offense. I've, I've made the case before that they were actually more of an offensive team in 2022 than they were uh, a defensive team. Still a really good defense, but but they were led by their offense. 2021 Georgia was a defense, and they have a case for being the greatest defense in college football history, I think. Um, but we've seen this twice now in three years where great defenders, experienced defenses, teams that are able to shut down even great opposing passing offenses are able to win that way. And it's funny, right? Because we've been in the era of the SEC for most of the last 20 years. Um, and, and Georgia, of course, still an SEC team. But stylistically, we're starting to see football kind of move back a little bit. I, I've made the case before. Obviously, I have a Big 12 background. I mean, I think it's four of the top 15 running backs in college football are returning to the Big 12 in 2024. I, I think that we are moving away from pace and space, spread, uh, chucking the ball down the field. And I think that we're starting to see that it is possible if you have continuity, if you have 
experience, if you have talent, if you can develop at a high level to actually build defenses that can compete with some of these offenses. One of the cases that I always make is that the biggest difference between college football and the NFL is defensive back play and offensive line play. Like, like that's where you see guys struggle at the next level is, Hey man, those windows are no longer open at the NFL level. Like they were in college. But I think that we've started to see, especially at that defensive back position and especially schematically on the defensive side of the ball, they have come up with some stuff that's really confusing receivers. And, you know, this is again, I think a conversation we've had before, like receivers aren't able to coast on physical traits anymore. It's about timing. It's about uh, being able to win underneath even more than it is being able to just win a one-on-one matchup. I think that there are receivers in the game now who would have been stars in 2012 that now can barely get on the field. Like I think that even you look at Alabama, Alabama, uh, they they have recruited at an incredibly high level at receiver but those guys aren't winning because of the way that opponents can defend them differently. And so I do think that defense is starting to fight back a little bit. It's starting to strike mm-hmm. back a little bit. We saw some of these first waves with the late 2010s Clemson teams, which stole, by the way, from Iowa State. I want to be very clear about that. Uh, Iowa State is where a lot of this originated, but they started running these, these three-man fronts, dropping eights, and having versatile defenders that can attack from all over the field. Again. That was Iowa State first. I want to be clear about that. But uh, but Clemson kind of took it to that next level um, with an Isaiah Simmons coming through. Now you're starting to see, you know, teams obviously winning up front with four at such a high level and being able to drop back and being able to play, you know, cover two shells and all this sort of stuff. So I don't know. I I have always thought because I came up, you know, in in the 2010s when offenses won. I thought that we reached a point in college football that offenses would win forever. Huh. I think it might be changing. Yeah. I'm, uh, okay. So uh, when we talk about defenses and we talk about Big 12, I immediately, my mind goes to the 2000 Oklahoma Sooners because that was a defense. That team could put up offense. I mean, Josh Heupel was the quarterback yes, yes, on that yes. team. But uh, they had some, that defense was remarkable and it, it culminated in a national championship game where they beat a team that scored only two points. Florida State managed to safety, which <laughs> is like, yeah, no. So, I mean, I remember when that was the era of defense wins championships. And I agree, it seemed to erode a little bit. I always think of guys like Chip Kelly and the offenses we started to see that were really not only because sometimes. The question was, I mean, if we're talking about the, the kind of the larger evolution of the thinking was, oh, it's gimmick offenses. My, you know, uh, um, you know, some of the stuff that was uh, Mike Leach was running. Everyone's like, oh, well, yeah, but, you know, it's Texas Tech. What else can they do? You know, you'd, you'd see some of this conversation happening. But um, as you said, you know, we started to see, particularly in the 2010s, this evolution to you can have a wildly successful offense and a defense alongside of it. Um I'm not surprised to see a bit of a shift to the mean. I'm surprised to see it, I think, so heavily rely on the defense. Because when I went back and reviewed the game again, because I wanted to be sure of of some of my thoughts. First of all, I was, I mean, Penix made some massive mistakes that were not forced. I, I was actually, the more I watched, I'm like, man, it, it, they, they, they really were close, just close, man. They were close to to flipping this thing around. 
Yeah. And, and that's the thing. I was so entrenched on like, wow, he really, he could have, there were opportunities he had and he's the one who just kind of like, and he, you know, whatever, I forgive it. Their kids still, you, you can have an off game. <laughs> I don't know, man. He's pretty old. He's, he's been around for I was a little about while. To say, next season. <laughs> uh, then suddenly, no, no, no. I love how that immediate shift. You know? I don't know if he gets the kid excuse, man. I don't know if he does. <laughs> 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 oh my goodness. But um, yeah, so all of that said, I mean, looking at the way that offense of Michigan ran itself, you know, the, the, the blocking was exceptional. Pass blocking was decent, but the run blocking and then the intelligence of Donovan Edwards to, to see the field, all of that stuff. We saw old school football in so many ways that, yeah, have we shifted too far or was it just the unique quirkiness of a Harbaugh. Because that's the thing. I mean, this goes back to the earlier question. If Harbaugh leaves and they promote from within, we'll probably see more of the same. I doubt we're going to see. If Sharon Moore becomes a head coach, I doubt he's going to be like, oh, you know, let's let's start all over. I think we're going to see more of that. Um, but it is an interesting question. I mean, is this something that's unique to them? Or how easy is it for other teams to adapt that? I mean, I'm going to take a second and say, one of the things that people notice who observe FCS football, where the strength, the strong teams tend to be in the Dakotas, Montana, up north, is those teams tend to be old school offenses with just dominating lines. Um, and that would be how they would how they would kind of win, especially South Dakota State these past two years. But um, I don't know how easy it is for other FBS programs to just say, you know what, let's sh- let's do what Michigan's doing. So do we think this is going to be more of a, a quirk to them or is this something other teams can maybe pick up and run with? It's a good question. And, you know, to I, I want to draw attention to one player who I think kind of embodies what Michigan did and I think also embodies a little bit of a trend in college football. And that's Mike Sanders still. He started his career at Michigan as a receiver. And... One of the reasons why I thought that maybe offenses would just <laughs> kind of win forever is because the best athletes on the field typically want to have the ball in their hands, right? So whoever your best player is, you're probably putting him at receiver. You know, if, if it's 2010, 2012, 2014. And so the question is, right? So like if, if the quote unquote lesser athletes are just always being pushed to defense, is that a trend that's going to change? Well, I think that a couple things have happened in the NFL. You're starting to see cornerbacks are getting their dang money, right? Like like they're, they're becoming some of the highest paid players in all of football, uh, running backs, the flip side, right? So people don't want to play running back the same way anymore. I think that does impact, uh, some of the athletes that you have at the position, even at the college level. And I think that you're starting to see, you know, guys who are body types who would have historically been receivers now moving over to defensive back. And and Mike Sanders still is key among them, right? Somebody who's not huge. He's only 5'10", but he's big. He's physical. He has great ball skills. He's very athletic. Uh, because he's played receiver, he has an understanding of defending the receiver position in a unique kind of way. And so I think this is a trend uh, to, to kind of make that happen. The other piece that I think makes this interesting, because because like you said, I, I mean, we're starting to see that that great athletes are starting to play defense more often, especially in the defensive backfield, those swing type athletes who would have been receivers before. But I think the other part of this, too, is that um, 
I mean, there is a diversity to the run game right now that like, like you have to go back a while to see some of this level of diversity, right? You got to go back to like wishbone type stuff and like, you know, just just in terms of like the movement with offensive lines and the versatility and the pulling and the, you know, the it just all this sort of stuff is is, I think, a return in some ways you, you saw you know, especially when when the spread and air raid stuff came out, it was so much just inside zone, right? It was so much just like, let's just set things up and run a basic play that's really built out of space more than it's built out of blocking scheme. And I think that you're starting to see, oh, well, I mean, I, I'll even point to the Alabama uh, Rose Bowl game. They had that drive where they put in a second tight end as a blocker and that dude was doing work, right? Like, and, and I think that... That's kind of, uh, you know, the flip back. Again, the, one of the reasons that I love covering the Big 12 especially is because, like, they are they don't not have recruiting juggernauts. And so they always kind of have to stay ahead in their own way. You see, like I talked about, the evolution at Iowa State of the 3-3-5 to a different kind of level where you have these versatile edge defenders who are able to drop back into coverage. And so then you also see the the flip side of that, which is, like the growth of the wide zone run game where you start to see the counter game pull up. Right. And so this is like an evolution of uh, a response to that, of the cover two shells and taking what's underneath, I think in a lot of ways. So anyway, I'm rambling a little bit, but this is such a fascinating uh, concept to me. And I think that all this to say, I think that a lot of this goes back to where do people want to play in 2024 do guys just want to catch the ball in space and run with it like they did a while back? Or do they want to develop into high-level defensive back prospects? Do they want to play linebacker? Do they want to play safety? And I think that we're starting to see that the answer is yes in a lot of cases, in a lot more cases than maybe we saw before, because people understand the amount of money that's available once you get to the next level if you're able to excel in that position. So um all that to say, all of them, all of that to say, <laughs> I think that I think that this is replicable. Now, will will you get the same level of defense as Michigan? I, you know, that's obviously very difficult to do. It took Michigan multiple years to get to that point. Uh, you know, teams like Georgia and even you know the way that Alabama's recruited historically, they have a little bit of a leg up to do that. But I do think that it's as much about development within your system. I think it's as much about communication within your system, guys playing together. And so actually, I think just as much as it's about legitimate defensive schematics, it's also going to be so much about being able to replicate Michigan's player retention. Because that's the factor right now. When I look at Alabama, when I look at, you know, another great recruiting team, Texas A&M, when I look at Clemson right now, when I look at Ohio State right now, they're kind of flipping players a little quicker than I'd like, uh, whether it's guys entering the draft or transferring. And I think that ultimately, Texas, Alabama, uh, Texas, Michigan, uh, Washington this year, those are the teams that managed to keep kids around. And I think that they've benefited from it. Yeah, you brought up something that made me realize is, was the way Harbaugh ran Michigan in the last several years, how Dabo wished people would see Clemson for all the the crap people were giving him about not running the portal, not caring about the portal and, and the, the, the speeches he would give about it. Um, Harbaugh basically kind of, you know, a lot of those guys had been at Michigan. They were three-year guys, four-year guys. 
Um, and he managed to put together a roster that could win. And I think had Harbaugh said some of the things um, uh, Dabo had said, uh, he people would have been like, yeah, see, he's right. But I mean, you know, it's amazing how <laughs> those two maybe perhaps are a little more similar than people want to realize. But Dabo gets all the heat and Harbaugh, people were too busy. And, well, and frankly, Harbaugh, they put in a Che Guevara hat on the cover of the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> yep, that was great. I love that one. I, that, that one that, that made me that gave me a hearty chuckle. You know, when we're talking about just sort of another way of looking at it, where where, where does a player want to play? You know, are we also seeing a shift away from the domination of the South as a college football? I mean, I'm not saying the call, I'm not saying they're going to be supplanted, but are we seeing a shift where the North can certainly have its strength? And how much weight should we put into the fact that, although it was technically the final Pac-12 football game, those are two now Big Ten football teams? Is this an opportunity to see the Big Ten? And friends uh, might potentially be <laughs> the uh, might might prove that they can be actually they can dominate football as much as the South has in the past. Well, I think this is part of the interesting question because so many of the dynamics that we talk about with the SEC are actually just Nick Saban dynamics, right? I mean, he won <laughs> yeah. six titles. We're like, oh my gosh, that's he played in this many title games, won this many titles, and it's like, yeah, that's Nick Saban, man. That, that's just one dude, and. <laughs> I think that we're starting to see a lack of consolidation from the SEC because of, I don't want to even say Saban's decline, because it wasn't a decline, but it was it was a pause in some ways. And, and, and I want to say it was also a bit of his own success because Kirby yeah. Smart is one right. of his best disciples and has basically yep. been created what he created at, yep. uh, in Georgia, what he created at Alabama. So that's Absolutely. the other thing. His success spurred success. Absolutely. And I think that you even talk about the player acquisition apparatus at Texas A&M. You talk about the player acquisition apparatus at Texas. These are all things that Mm -hmm. were created because of Nick Saban. But the fact that there's multiple of them now, I think, uh, even sings out just a little bit, not even getting into the, you know, the Tennessees and the Miamis and the Oregons that obviously are kind of causing chaos with just, you know, NIL operations and all this sort of thing. But I think the other part of this, too, is that I think that Northern programs, you see a Washington, you see an Oregon, uh, you know, you see a Nebraska actually going into Texas a lot. They understand, I think, that football is national now. And there used to be a time where, I mean, if you're a Southeastern kid, like you got to stay home, right? Like like that's what everybody's going to do. I I think the dynamics are changing just a little bit as the sport gets more national. Uh, It kind of happened the reverse way where California kids were like, well, I have to play big time football, so I got to leave. I think that's Mm going to change just a little bit because now they're in the Big Ten and now they, they feel like they're playing big time football. And I think the other part of it too is that you know, I think that there's more of an understanding for a handful of programs what they're actually looking for. Like, there's so many programs in the Big Ten right now that are trying to emulate Iowa. You know, Minnesota does that a little bit. Uh, I think that, like, you know, and Wisconsin might be even a little bit of a better example of what teams are trying to emulate. But you see Illinois, right? They literally hired a former Wisconsin coach. Well, this is a more realized version of what those teams are is what just happened at the university of Michigan. And so 
I think that there's going to be a little bit more of an understanding of that. I'm curious as well whether it trickles down to the high school level in the north, you know, in terms of running maybe these more complex blocking schemes, whether it's, you know, guys recommitting to defense. We saw this so much, uh, obviously, in my home state of Texas with the air raid taking over high school football and seven on seven and and all this sort of stuff. Um, And so, you know, look, will they be able to match level of dominance of the South? That to me is a bit of a stretch just because of the amount of talent in the South. But can they pull things closer than they did before now that the Big Ten finally has a second team that's won a national championship since we started having national championship games? I absolutely think that that's going to be a factor. You know, it brings up another interesting question, too, about where, as you said, the flow of recruits, are they willing to also look more nationally? And I I haven't really looked at the numbers, but it's interesting to to see with, because there's two levels of it. There's the high school recruits and then there's transfers, because you can't look at Washington and ignore the fact that two of their stars, Michael Penix Jr. is a Southern guy who went to Indiana and then transferred over. And Dylan Johnson, the running back, was a Mississippi guy who went to Mississippi State and also ended up at Washington. So they flowed sort of in the secondary market. I don't know how you want to call it, but, you know, they once they realize that this isn't about playing in my local school, this is about playing the win. And I don't care where I go as long as I can get, you know, maybe some compensation, but also an opportunity to to, to shine. Um and the, so on the transfer portal market, I think that's that has made every player has come to this consensus, this, this conclusion that, you know what, I, I just want to go where I want to work. But I think that question for me now is at the high school level, how quickly will it take for a kid, let's say in Alabama or Georgia, to suddenly strongly consider a Michigan or a Washington? I mean, they have been before. The, the top, top tier teams can. Certainly Ohio State can, can pull from anywhere they want. But it's like now will we start to see, particularly now that they're going into the Big Ten, um, as well as their higher um, their higher caliber, kind of their higher status, higher higher attention with Oregon and Washington. It'll be very interesting to see those guys as they start to recruit in this market. And will there be players who will be willing to cross the nation for it? And also, to be honest, if I were a recruiter, I'd be like, look, <laughs> I wouldn't want to sell it this way. But if I had a wavering recruit that was like debating about the distance, I'm like, look, if you don't like it, you know, the portal's a thing. You know, <laughs> it's no longer you don't have to go transfer to some. D, uh, I was about to say D1AA because I'm old. Uh, you don't have to transfer to some <laughs> FCS program or some JUCO and then work your way back up. You can just go back to wherever, you know, if you're talented, they'll take you. Um, but, um, goodness, it's it's fascinating to imagine that because you brought that up. And I'm I'm wondering how much of a shift that's going to be because. You know, Ann Arbor's still cold. It's negative as we're recording this. It's in the negative temperatures today. I know because I have a friend there who moved uh, from abroad and he's like, I, I'm already over the cold. And I can't imagine he's not from a place like, you know, Louisiana or Alabama where it gets really hot. And you know, he's he's from a, a more California climate. But some of these guys grew up in like Florida. You know, <laughs> it's going to be a dramatic shift for them. I, I'm, I'm curious to see how that works on the recording, the recruiting angle. I hadn't really considered that. but. That, And so I think that one sort of informative thing is to look at Oregon's transfer class, because I think that transfers might actually be also the second piece of this, where you're seeing blue chip guys going all over the country. And, uh, you know, for Oregon, Evan Stewart, he's from Texas, right? Transferred from Texas A&M. Dylan Gabriel, he's from Hawaii. He uh, he transferred from Oklahoma, started his career at UCF. Uh, You see uh, Dante Moore, you know, he is a Detroit kid but he played at UCLA before he came back up. Uh, 
you know, Jamari Caldwell, another Texas kid transferring from Houston. So I think this is a way to even things out a little bit because one thing that you hear, and I, I wrote a story a while back about the transfer portal for CBSSports.com. Maybe I'll, I'll tweet it out again. Um, but the deal is, is that the first time that guys commit to a school, there's a lot of factors that go into it. It might be, uh, you know, a type or feel or a coaching staff or, you know, just a, it could be anything almost that convinces you to go. I mean, again, I like any of us going to college for the record. That's that's what always gets me about people complaining about kids changing their mind. You know how many times I changed my mind before I ended up going to college or I did. but. The second time, the the phrase that everybody used when they talked about transfers and going to their second school was business decision. They mm-hmm. did what was best for them and for their careers. And that might mean a kid from Hawaii becoming a quarterback in Eugene, Oregon, right? That, that might mean a kid from Tampa moving to Seattle. And so I think that the second transfer, I think, is going to end up being a huge benefit for northern programs because it gives you a second chance to be able to come in and say i'm going to put myself in the best football position possible because we talked about it with doug lay maurice on our northern football show one of the things that i think the big 10 has been able to do is they've put together a great group of coaches and not just head coaches but also great coordinators and because of that You're seeing guys develop at a higher level. You're seeing guys put in good positions. You're seeing guys who develop within a scheme and are prepared for the NFL, even if they weren't top five national recruits. And so now if you're able to mix that in with some of the talented kids who are looking for a second home, like an Evan Stewart, like a Michael Penix Jr., like a Jalen Polk, I I think that does change the dynamic for Northern teams a little bit if they're willing to take advantage of it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you'd be, I mean, because you said second transfer, you mean just transfer portal. I think yeah, the yeah, there's second opportunity. Second opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you 100% on that. You know, as we kind of slowly wrap this up, I want to know what lessons do you think other teams could take from the Michigan? I call it the Michigan model. I'm like, that feels too much like it's ever the Michigan man. Like, I don't know if I want to quite go that way. But from what we saw from the Wolverines this season, what are some of the biggest takeaways if you were advising or writing in an article for CBS Sports? Um, what lessons could uh, other programs take away from, from Michigan this season? Well, I think that some of the takeaways are you have to be able to do enough on offense, right? I mean, if this was like, we have Iowa as a counterfactual here and they had as good a defense as Michigan, but, but Michigan was able to have some dynamic components on offense and they were able to be creative in the run game and they were able to develop at a high level. So I think that that's a key part of it is you have to have an offensive scheme and offensive talent that actually emphasizes what you want to do. Uh, I think the other part of it is development matters and getting old matters. I I make the comparison to college basketball where we see these teams that consistently have one and dones, right? Duke and Kentucky, you know, Duke hasn't won a title since 2015. Kentucky hasn't won one since 2012. I'll even point to my own alma mater, Baylor. They've started putting one and dones into the NBA and they haven't been back to the Elite Eight since then. 
So I, I think that having a roster that gets old and stays old and retaining players and having them learn multiple years in, in your system, I, I think that that's a huge advantage. And I think that you look at a team like Michigan, where so many of the players who played on the 2023 national title team were on the 2021 Big Ten team and played major snaps, whether in the actual season in the Big Ten title game against Ohio State or in the college football playoff against Georgia. A lot of these kids played. And so I think that retention means just a little bit more than acquisition, potentially, especially if you're able to develop at a high level. I think that having a big picture plan and vision for what you want your team to look like is a huge part of it. I think that having leaders on your team is a huge part of it. And again, this comes back to retention. J.J. McCarthy, Blake Corum, Chris Jenkins, Junior Colson, Will Johnson, Mike Sainer still like these are these are all time type leaders at Michigan that were able to stick through the program and ultimately lead the team to a national championship. And so ultimately, I think that it's just a message that doing things the old way works, but you have to be willing to adapt the old to the new. I think that's a salient lesson for a lot of programs. And I wonder if looking back, we'll say Michigan was perhaps one of the uh, extremes in terms of being able to retain so much and play such a mature team into a national championship um, only because of the realities of the portal and the realities of perhaps Harbaugh's persona being so unique and able to, to keep that because whatever you say, I, I'm, I'm almost amazed at how successful it was this season because I, I like, I, I get, I'm amused by him. I don't, I know he's not an idiot. He's very smart. Um, but I'm just like, how, how is that personality able to glue all of this together? Like, I don't know if I were in that position, it's something I don't see not being around him all the time, but I mean, so some of that I'm going to credit to him because clearly what he, there's something He's pouring in the water or whatever. I don't know. Maybe Connor was pouring in the water. That that's keeping them all together there. But I'm not sure, especially if he leaves, how many programs are going to be able to do it because we're seeing, as we just talked earlier, Davos trying to do the same thing, and that uh, the pitchforks. I mean, well, at least Alabama wasn't interested in him. At least their fans certainly weren't. Um, you know, it, it's going to be remarkable to see how this this moves forward. Well, I think that's a good spot to wrap this up and this wonderful episode of a college football survivor show. There's just so much we learned this season about Michigan and so much that still is going to be answered. I'm sure through books and, and kind of uh, after action reports and, and various articles over the rest of the, uh, over the rest of the off season. Well, Thank you all for listening. This is always a pleasure to have you join us. You know, if you get a chance, take a moment to like, rate, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Write a review. Maybe we'll include it in a future show if it sounds interesting. That'd be fun. I like that idea. I want to thank our producer, Joey Alberti. You can find us on X and TikTok at CFB Survivor Show. He's Shayanjay Raja. You can find his work at cbssports.com and at Shayanjay Raja on X and TikTok. I'm Bob Ekairi. It's always a pleasure. Have a great one, everyone. The College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line.